<laughs> what truth is, um, I, I did not do it with a lot of debt. Um, I did it with a lot of um, uh, cash flow from existing businesses. Uh, I did it from uh, alternative sources of capital. You know, for example, um, and it's why I'm in the gold royalty business right now. When I was building the biggest mine I ever built, uh, which was a copper project in the Andes in Peru at 5,000 meters elevation. And it was a $2 billion project. And we had a small precious metal component to the revenue um, as a byproduct of 5% of our revenue, 95% of it was copper. And I went to a streaming company, Wheaton Precious Metals, and asked them to write me a check for that precious metal stream, $750 million towards the construction, the $2 billion construction project. So here's the big question. Have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder, why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money? I've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early. I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is the Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome to Money Talkers with your host, Cody Laughlin. I have David Garofalo here with me who has a laundry list of things that he's accomplished, but one of the biggest ones that will stand out is he's done the biggest merger in gold mining history at $32 billion. Um, but David's been a CEO, um, president and chairman of the board of directors for the Gold Royalty Company, and David has also worked in uh, various leadership capacities in the natural resources sector over the last 30 years. He served as president and chief executive of Gold Corp until it sailed to Newmont Corporation in 2019. Um, but he's also had a long line history uh, in the mining industry and uh, has been even been named Mining Person of the Year in 2012 and Canada's CFO of the Year by Financial Executives International Canada in 2009. So with all that, welcome to the show, David. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Cody. I could have probably read for another 10 minutes of all your accomplishments, but I had to, I had to, dump, I had to bring it down <laughs> some. So, um, but so David, tell me this, um, you know, coming on to Money Talkers, this is an opportunity to kind of uh, help parents and kids learn about the things that um, have made people like yourself successful. And so how did it, how did it start for you um, to, to your career path to where you ended up and doing the largest deal in gold history? <laughs> well, it, it started with actually with a good financial education. I had an undergrad in commerce and then I pursued my CPA and that gave me a good financial grounding to help me understand businesses from the ground up. And um, right after I completed my CPA, I was hired by a mining company called Inmet Mining, the base metal producer in, in Toronto. And they were looking for a really junior accountant, which I was. I just finished my CPA, didn't know much of anything. Certainly didn't know much about the natural resources and mining sector. I had actually been doing a lot of retail and financial institution audits when I was with Deloitte's back in the late 80s. And uh, just kind of learned the business from the ground up, initially starting to do consolidation accounting, in other words, preparing financial statements for a year or so. 
And then uh, the project development group poached me to help them with uh, feasibility work and help them with tendering large contracts. And so I really learned the mining business literally from the ground up from early stages of feasibility through to construction and commissioning. And uh, over the course of my career, because of that, I've been involved in the construction of 15 different mines across the world. And that really gave me a good grounding in the business, but really started with my financial education. Was, were you, did you have a financial education before you went and got your financial education? Like how was, what was your money story in your household growing up? Well, I, I would say that um, my financial education came from my immigrant parents who came to Canada, which is a story that all of us have experienced at some generation, came to Canada penniless and just kind of worked their way up and understood the importance of building equity in their homes um, and, and saving every penny they could uh, for retirement. Um, and so I, I came from a very grounded background and I know a lot of us have and uh, went through the public school system. And um, while I had a middle-class upbringing, um, you know, my parents came from poverty. So I understood the value of a dollar. And I think that gave me a, a really good grounding um, and gave me, I guess, a, a predisposition to going into the financial side of the world, um, just because money was so important in our house uh, growing up because my parents came with none. Yeah, it's a it's a different perspective, um, you know, and in, uh, in, in that side of things when, you know, you've got someone willing to risk their entire life coming across, you know, an ocean with no idea of where you're going, you know, and, and in, in those times, it wasn't like you could, you know, Google it and see like a good place to live or anything, you know, I can't even imagine what the uh, gumption it would take to do that. Um, and it, it, it imagine it would probably carry over with you for the rest of your life to be able to do something like that and build something. Absolutely. And yeah, no, I'm very fortunate to have had that kind of background, but you know, among your listeners, I'm sure there are a lot of people that came from an immigrant background, either second, third, fourth generation, first generation, or even they're, even if they're immigrants themselves, um, they understand uh, the, the difficulty of uh, changing cultures, changing countries and restarting again. I can't imagine what my parents went through what immigrants continue to go through even today. Yeah. You know, it's, and the funny thing about that, and it's kind of, you know, we're on a different subject, but I mean, if you, if you think about what it would take to pull that off, you know, that it, even it, when they tell the stories, they're probably a lot rosier than they really were, you know, uh, yeah. because it's, you know, you're proud of where you ended up at, but imagine doing that to start off with, um, it's got in the moment must've been just crazy. <laughs> You know, and that's, that's, I imagine that they have probably kept that in the, in the household and the conversations with you. Did they talk to you about, uh, about money and those kinds of things? Or was it, um, you know, a lot of times uh, in our households, we talk about the, I guess, <clears throat> lack of money would be better. <laughs> you know, something's too expensive or we can't afford it, those kinds of things. Or were they more on the other side where it was more of a um, set you off with, a, hey, you can build something if you want it to go get it. No, it's a good point. And I, I don't pretend to have grown up in an impoverished household. It wasn't. It was kind of very middle class. But my parents, uh, I guess, instilled in me the sense of scarcity and the importance of making sure that you're saving for what you want later on. Um, so I've always had the sense that saving is extremely important um, and that you put off consumption today um, for you know, hopefully something better down the road. And that means putting capital aside to do that. Um, and definitely an aversion to debt. Yeah. I've always had that. And my parents have always had that. And, you know, my parents obviously 
had to put a mortgage on their first house, but my dad literally worked three jobs in order to pay that off as quickly as possible. My mother worked as well uh, while trying to raise my sister and I. So, uh, you know, my parents worked their tails off to make sure they weren't carrying debt for very long and they only did it for, for their house and that's it. And so that stuck with you? That stuck with me. I'm not one to carry credit card debt, nor am I one to carry a mortgage for very long. Uh, I like to pay those off and be debt free as quickly as I can. So how were you able? How were you able to build this gigantic gold company uh, with that aversion to debt? <laughs> what well, truth is, um, I, I did not do it with a lot of debt. Um, I did it with a lot of um, uh, cash flow from existing businesses. Uh, I did it from uh, alternative sources of capital. You know, for example, um, and it's why I'm in the gold royalty business right now. When I was building. The biggest mine I ever built, uh, which was a copper project in the Andes in Peru at 5,000 meters elevation, and it was a $2 billion project, and we had a small precious metal component to the revenue um, as a byproduct of about 5% of our revenue, 95% of it was copper. And I went to a streaming company, Wheaton Precious Metals, and asked them to write me a check for that precious metal stream, $750 million towards the construction, the $2 billion construction project. And we already had a billion dollars on the balance sheet that we generated from cash flow from our existing business in Canada. So we had a really good head start. I took on a small amount of debt uh, in order to finance the construction, about $300 million. We accessed the bond markets in the US, but as you can see, most of it was equity or near equity type financing because of the aversion I've always had to debt, particularly in a cyclical business like mining. You know, metal yeah. prices go up and down. And, you know, when you're building large scale mines, you can't hope to time the cycle. So you hit the peak, even if you tried to do that, you, I guarantee you'd fail because it's hard to predict those cycles. So, you know, you don't want to carry in the normal course, a lot of debt in the mining business. So I'm always curious about this because I really don't know anything about it um, on the mining side of things. So you go to do a $2 billion project in the Andes, 15,000 feet in the air. Uh, and like, what is the how do you know what's there to mine? <laughs> and then how does it, I mean, are they literally just, you know, sectioning off an area and say, we're going to dig? Like how, I just, I'm curious on like the actual logistics part of it. Well, you know, it, it's a kind of classic mining story and that property had gone through multiple hands over many, many years. So the initial discovery, geological discovery was made back in the 1970s. Um, and but what, so can I ask one question? Like why, why would they discover that? Um, it could have been uh, old-fashioned prospecting. Um, really? You know, they're they're walking through the area and they see an outcrop. In other words, a rock that had some indicators of mineralization. They literally take a hammer out of their <laughs> out of their belt, chisel off a little something, take it and sample it in an assay lab, and say, "Hey, this this has some interest. Maybe we'll do some geophysical um, surveying here." You know, and they can do that either by air or by a handheld device and yeah. are looking for uh, geophysical anomalies that could indicate uh, the presence of additional mineralization. And that goes down to a certain depth below surface. And on that basis, they might do some trenching and get some additional samples and send that back to assay. And if that's promising, maybe they'd actually do some drilling. And, and that's really how it started. Um, and initially that property was in government hands because the economy was, uh, was uh, nationalized back in the 60s and 70s when Peru was a socialist state. And then there was a process of privatization that occurred in the 1990s when Alberto Fujimori, who was a right, right wing 
uh, conservative guy came in and he privatized the economy, many aspects of the economy, including its natural resources. And that just ramped up the expiration on that property. And again, it went through multiple hands before we got our hands on it. A junior company had taken it over, raised some money in Canada on the basis of those promising geological discoveries, drilled it out more extensively and found a large scale deposit. And then we brought our balance sheet and our mind building expertise to bear. Juniors are good at exploration, but not necessarily good at building and operating because they don't have access to capital, nor do they have necessarily access to the engineers and geologists and metallurgists they need to build out a productive mine. We had that, you know, I was running a company called HUD Bay that had been in operation for a hundred years, uh, mostly in Northern Canada and Manitoba. So we had a lot of expertise, but we were looking to diversify into another country with bigger deposits. And we bought that one and built it out. That's basically the story. But that's that's a common story in the mining business. The juniors find things. And then the established producers are the ones that actually bring their balance sheet and their mind building expertise to bear on promising geological discoveries. That's really interesting. And so when you're, because you're a, you're a finance guy, obviously, being the CFO and those kinds of things. Um, what, I'm curious to like, so you, you, you say you have a $2 billion project that you guys had, that was your expense side of it. What does the other side, the margin have to look like to make that a worthwhile mine to do? Because you're going to have running expenses with, you know, miners and all the other stuff and transportations and all these other things. Like what, how big does that deposit need to be to warrant the cost to get into the project? Well, with that kind of project, you know, we were looking for about 200 million pounds of copper production per year. Per year. Our margins were, were, were going to guess, you know, at the time we were using $3 copper to guesstimate what the margins were. We were thinking we'd be about $1.50 per pound margin. So, uh, so that would mean roughly a five-year payback on that initial investment. Um, but that had a 30-year reserve. And, oh, really? So it's 30 years of that return of that six yeah. million, $600 million. And, and so, and you know, you're going to get peaks and valleys in the cycle. And in fact, after we yeah. built the copper went down to the low twos and the margins contracted, but today's copper is north of four bucks per pound and at all times highs. So that, that mine is just absolutely killing it right now. It's generating massive amounts of cash flow. And, and I'm sure by this point, we built it in 2015, it's paid back all its capital. So it's 18 billion. Is that my, my rough math? 30 years at $600 million on $3 yeah. copper, right? So 18 yeah. billion to do a $2 billion project, but it pays out yeah. over 30 years. But you have to take time value of money into consideration. Yeah. You're putting that 2 billion up front, taking all the risk, and then that 18 yeah. discounted back, you know, but still it's a very good return. Um, if it's got a long enough mine life, then you're likely to experience multiple cycles, multiple peaks in the cycles over 30 years where you're going to just absolutely you know, make back your capital and then some and multiples of it. Wow. Yeah. I just really never, ever had the chance to ask someone about the actual numbers of it. Cause I'm always interested in those things. And I look at a lot of different businesses and entrepreneurs and like, <laughs> I, you know, first, I don't know any miners. So I uh, <laughs> wanted to ask, but so it, it, obviously you've been the precious metals business. You've been for a very long time, very well established in doing these things. Um, where do you see that fitting into an investment portfolio these days? Um, you know, if we've got parents listening to these things and they're starting to talk to their kids about these things, like how does, how would, how would you, I don't want to say make the case, but what, what is this current state in the future state with the precious metals uh, being that we've got all these new asset classes, we call them uh, out there. Yeah. Look, I, I think gold is always an important part of the portfolio. And I think, 
um, more so today than ever, just because there's just been this massive amount of currency printing going on across the world. Um, you know, it really goes back to the credit crisis we had over 10 years ago when there was a massive amount of stimulus introduced in the economy to stave off disaster. You know, after yeah. Lehman failed, there was a concern that the whole financial system would collapse because of lack of liquidity. So what happened is all the central banks for the first time got together, literally got together and said, you know what, we're all going to introduce a, a massive amount of monetary stimulus into the economy. And guess what? It hasn't stopped since then. It's yeah. just been a relentless party of fiat currency printing. And that's been amplified again since the onset of the COVID, uh, COVID crisis, the pandemic over the last couple of years, the concern that the economy would just basically uh, stop in its tracks because of lack of liquidity, lack of confidence. So there's just been a lot of monetary and fiscal stimulus introduced into the system. And as a result, all these governments have strapped on a lot of debt and they have no fiscally responsible way to repay that debt. And the only way to them to deal with that is to basically inflate it away. And so what I mean by that is debase the underlying currency and debase the debt so that it's worth less in time value uh, terms. So over time, you know, a dollar of debt today is going to be worth 50 cents of debt in 10 years at the, at the pace they're inflating right now. And so that's how you deal with debt is you continue to grow the common economy in a nominal basis and make the debt a smaller component of it. Because uh, it, it stays stagnant, particularly at low interest rates, you know, effectively zero interest rates on a nominal basis, that debt becomes worth and wor worth less and less over time as the economy is inflated. Yeah, I read something that we created close to 40% of the of the uh, money in circulation in the last two years. That, that is correct. Um, and if you look at the history of the US dollar for the longest time, it was pegged to the, the gold, to gold, to its underlying gold reserves so that stopped in the early 70s under, under Richard Nixon. Since then, there's been nothing to tether, tether money supply. It's just been um, you know, built up. Supplies grown exponentially. For 100 years, the money supply didn't change at all. It was really tethered to gold. After that, there's just been a, a massive exponential increase in money supply with no underlying basis for it, no foundation to it like there was until the early 1970s. And that's why gold, you know, during the inflation cycle in the 70s, reached a peak in 1981 of $850 an ounce. If you translate that into 2021 dollars, that's $3,000 an ounce. We're not anywhere close to the all-time high for gold on a real basis. And I see no reason why we wouldn't achieve that with all this monetary stimulus being introduced. We're seeing headline inflation numbers start to go up, you know, at multi-year highs for the first time, five, six, seven percent. Why? I think that massively understates real inflation because it excludes things like housing, fuel, food. Well, actually, awesome. we, we <laughs> what do we spend our money on, right? <laughs> exactly. We devote the majority of our budgets to those sorts of things. You know, you need a roof over your head. You need um, you need food in your stomach. You need fuel in your cars. And, and guess what? Those have inflated double digit. If you've tried to buy a house in the last year, it's gone up 30%. I, agree, I guarantee you, if you're looking at an urban environment, and most of us live in urban environments, that's just the reality. So we're experiencing dramatically more inflation than the headline numbers might, might tell you. Well, I'll tell you something. I sold my, I sold my truck recently because I, it was, a, it was a five years old, 80,000 miles on it, and I sold it for what, almost what I paid for it. Yeah. I mean, it, it went from a value, it, it went, the, the value of the truck from one year went up $20,000. Yeah. 
and I just went like I, I didn't and I didn't I never even wanted to sell this truck I was going to drive it to the wheels fell off I love this truck and I was like <laughs> I was like this is insane like I'm yeah. here write me a check you know and I yeah. sold the truck off and I bought a you know I bought a cheaper one and I was like I'm just going to wait six months or a year or whatever else but you know I I, I you were talking earlier about how Peru was socialist and then they had a president come in and privatize it which i find fascinating because it's so hard to undo things once government has their fingers into it and i'm i'm thinking that same kind of parallel when we're talking about this like we've introduced all this money in the money supply and to i mean they've stated was to create some inflation uh because we've been under the two percent target but i don't I have a hard time figuring out how in the last 10 years we have had an open credit card to rack up almost $30 trillion in debt. I don't know how they undo it. Like, I don't know how they can put the toothpaste back in the tube. You know, once the politicians, once they have this access, like are we throwing around numbers, man, in trillions of dollars. And like I, now, you know, you talk about, Oh, well, we're going to give $20 billion to this. I'm like, that's, 20,000 millions like how, yeah. how do you I mean 20 and then and, and 20 billion is chump change these days to the government it just seems yeah. like you know they're talking about three and a half trillion dollars and I'm like I, I don't it, the numbers are the numbers are unfathomable to me and I don't know how I don't know how they're going to put it back yeah and, and it, it's even a bit worse than that I think there's a creepy nationalization that's going on in our economies because the Federal Reserve now is able to buy corporate bonds. Yeah, that was a right. new rule, right? For the they just passed out through, and it's yeah, yeah. And so, to me, that's like buying into the private economy, uh, which is not really what the Federal Reserve was designed to do under its original charter. So that's almost like nationalizing a lot of our private sector by buying their bonds. If there isn't a market for it, why not let these businesses fail? Well, the Federal Reserve is actually stepping in, printing money and buying these bonds and effectively taking ownership of these businesses. It's 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 what's been happening in China for decades, right? Under yeah, this quasi-communist but... capitalist regime. And, uh, and and now we're seeing it in the United States, in Canada, in the Western world. You know, it's one of the most overlooked things that the founding fathers did when they set up this country was the right to bankruptcy. Right, because yeah. you had debtors' prisons before, so it stymied anybody wanting to borrow and try to go, you know, shoot their shot at doing whatever was going to make the world better and being an entrepreneur and all these things. And so they they set up the bankruptcy courts to, and it's for me, it's one of the reasons that like we've been the leader in innovations for, since for two hundred years because we're allowed to go out and fail. When we stop allowing these companies to go out and fail, and we're backstopping them. You're doing more harm than good in my mind, because like I look at the airline industry and they're like, well, we couldn't let the airlines fail. We gave them 50 billion dollars, 50 billion, which is roughly the exact amount that they have bought back their own stock for the last three years. So we taught them, hey, don't worry about keeping cash on the balance sheet. We'll, we'll just back you up. But if they had let them go through bankruptcy, they reset all the debt. They reset yeah. the ownership like they, they I don't understand how we're backstopping all these companies. It sounds good in practicality, you know, because it's like, oh, we saved the airline industry. The airline industry wasn't going anywhere. It was just going to have new holders of debt. And now all of a sudden it's the Federal Reserve and it's, it's just mind boggling to me. It, they're, they're doing what is expedient as opposed to what's really fundamentally sound economically. 
Uh, and so there, there is going to be a reckoning at some point. And that's why I come back to gold as being the one currency can't be printed. Yeah, It's finite quantity. There's 200,000 metric tons that have been mined since the beginning of time. You could fit it into four Olympic-sized swimming pools. We're right. adding... Four, we're adding 4,000 tons a year, so 5% to supply a year. It's it's very, very controlled. And the reality is it can't be ramped up because it's so difficult to build new mines now to get permits, social license to operate. There's this high capital intensity, so huge barriers to entry. So it's not like if gold went to $3,000 an ounce, we could flick a switch and increase mine supply. It's actually quite there's no, the There's no gold fracking? <laughs> no, 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 there's nothing like that. We had our fracking moment with heat leach technology, which was introduced in the 70s that yeah. unlocked low-grade gold deposits. But you know, gold grades have gone down 50% over the last 10 years. So we're mining uh, increasingly low-grade material to just get more gold out. And the reality is gold supply is coming down because of lack of investment and exploration and development. So it's the one currency that can't be printed. It's been recognized for, for a currency for 4,000 years. Every other paper currency that's ever existed at some point failed. Mm. It, it always fails. It's inevitable because what happens is there's this temptation to undermine and debase the currency and inflate your way out of your problems. And eventually that leads to currency failure. Gold has never failed as a currency because it's so finite in quantity, can't be manipulated. It's indestructible. Um, and it's been recognized as currency by multiple, multiple cultures and generations for, for, for four millennia. So you, you said 4,000 tons? Is that that's how much gold we're producing a year? Yeah. That doesn't yeah. seem like a lot. No, no, it isn't. It's, uh, it's about 100 million ounces of gold per year. It's not a lot. Um, I mean, so I mean it sounds like a, I would like to have 100 million ounces of gold, obviously, but like it so doesn't sound like a lot when you're talking about 8 billion people. Well, you, you, could take all of, you could take all of the gold producers in the world, combine their market caps, and take all of the base metal producers and combine their market caps. On a combined basis, the mining industry is smaller than Apple. Wow. In terms of market cap. Is it because it's, I mean, is it, is there, it, let me ask you this. So if we're producing 4,000 tons a year, is that up or down from say 10 years ago? It's flat and okay. it's coming down. It's, it's coming going down. down because of the lack of significant discoveries over the last half a dozen years. In fact, if you look at reserves in the ground, defined reserves sitting on the balance sheets of mining companies, gold mining companies, that's down 40% over the last seven years. That's a leading indicator of what's going to happen to production. Mm. Because if you don't have the reserves in the ground, you can't produce. So every day that we mine an ounce of gold, we die a little bit as an industry, unless we're replacing it through our exploration efforts. And so we haven't been exploring over the last half a dozen years because gold's been kind of stagnant until recently. So we've only just recently saw a ramp up in exploration activity, but we're not going to skip the fruits of that labor for at least a decade, typically from discovery the first production, you're looking at 15 to 20 years. Wow. Because you have, you have to define it geologically. You have to make an economic case. And I talked about deposits changing multiple hands over time because it takes a long time to make an economic case. It's a, lot of, and, it's a long time to sink capital too. Yeah. and Because it's not producing, it's not producing anything. You're not getting though, money. Even to, when yeah. you make an economic case, it's a lot of upfront capital. I talked yeah. about a $2 billion project in the Andes in Peru. Um, it, it took a long time to make that case and then raise the money necessary to build it and get the permits 
and get the community buy-in and social license to operate. Yeah, and who knows if, if government hands change. You don't know if government hands change or, you know, the rules change. And it's not always set in stone in a lot of these places. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> wow. that's I, So um, do we lose? So I mean, do we lose? Do we have a... I don't know how to, uh, do we lose some of the existing gold deposits annually? Is there a number for that? Yeah. So, so as I said, you know, reserves are down 40%. Yeah. So the average reserve life of a deposit seven years ago was 20 years. Today. That, that's in, you're talking about the one that we're basically transporting that from dirt to, you know, use. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking about like the existing gold deposits are we is that supply does that stay like equal or does it does it degrade over time or do we lose gold like because i'm trying to think of like the metrics of if we're only producing you know four thousand tons and it's down big time over seven years and we're are we producing more than we're losing then probably but we're i'm, I'm just thinking about the the case for like based on against inflation right yeah because if there's less of we, it we, we lose <laughs> reserves through depletion through mining yeah. That's how you lose reserves. They don't waste, you know, they're sitting in the ground. Yeah. But if you're not. I'm, I'm talking them, about the after that's been mined. Like, do we, do we lose part of the no. existing gold supply? I guess. But basically every ounce that's ever been mined is sitting above ground, either in a central bank vault or around your fingers and wrists. Yeah. Well, that's what um, I was thinking. Like all the jewelry and things like we. You yeah. Know. Yeah. There's very, there's very little loss of gold. It, you know, occasionally in medieval times, you'd see a, a ship sink and there'd be, coins and whatnot lost, <laughs> you know, it, it, that, that kind of shrinkage is extremely rare. Um, yeah. So virtually everything that's ever been mined is still sitting above ground in vaults and, and people's wrists and fingers. And so we're adding, you said that was 5% of the supply? Yeah, per, per annum. Yeah, okay. we're adding about 5%. Yeah. And, and, it, and that's shrinking over time because of the depletion of reserves that I talked about a little earlier on. And what, I wonder how much money supply we're adding. Like, I wonder what that ratio is. Well, the reason I'm, about, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make a case for gold. The last two years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to make a case in my head of like yeah. how, you know, the, 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 um, if we're adding 5%, but we're adding 20% cash, like that's yeah. a really good case for a bullish case to hold, hold your money into a gold supply. That's precisely it. It's, it's the one currency can't be printed. It's a store of value. If you're concerned about inflation, destroying your savings, then you want to own gold because there's no opportunity cost to owning gold. Gold yields zero, admittedly, but Treasuries yield negative in real terms because nominal rates are effectively zero and inflation is eating five to 10% away from your savings every year. Yeah. Yeah. It's, gold uh, protects you from that. So if people want to own gold, how, what is the best way to do it? Because well, I mean, you, you know, you, buying, buying a giant nugget and putting it in my closet is one, <laughs> you know, one, one idea, but it's kind of scary to people. It's the same reason I don't keep a big pile of cash sitting in my house, you know? Yeah, there's a few ways to play gold. I mean, you can buy the physical and, and it's easier than you think you can buy coins, you can buy bars, you know, you can go to a bank that, you know, that'll sell it to you, Bank of New York or whoever. Um, and then you have to store it. I mean, there's costs associated with that unless you want to stick it under your mattress, but that's not terribly secure. Yeah. Um, and there's another way you can play, you can buy an ETF on the New York Stock Exchange that's physically backed by gold. It's called the GLD. Um, so that that gives you uh, economies of scale and storage costs because the bank who's responsible for storing it, you know, stores a lot of bars. And so you can save on those storage costs. So that gold um, ETF actually has gold. It's not just following yeah. the price of gold. 
it's physically backed by gold. There's a vault and they do uh, an audit every, every three months to do an inventory count to demonstrate that the gold is there. And then their, their uh, management and the auditors sign off that they've physically inspected the gold and it's back in the ETF as, as promised on the, on the, I, I never realized that I would have just thought that would be with the price of gold. You know what I mean? Like the, the price that I would, think we, I would have thought the ETF just would have followed the, the stock price, you know, it, it, it follows the gold price. It, it actually yeah. each, each share of the ETF equals an eighth of an ounce. So it, effectively the value of that ETF is an eighth of the current gold price minus a small amount for storage costs. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting because I didn't realize it would actually have gold. And then they, so it's an eighth of an ounce and then that's, that's pretty cool. I can't, I just I think it's a pretty wild idea, you know, because you think of ETFs, a lot of times they just follow market prices, you know, but they yeah, actually and, have and the gold a, behind it. It's pretty, it's pretty Yeah, there's pretty been cool. a proliferation of commodity ETFs. Gold's not the only one. Uh, there's silver ETFs as well. And, you know, if you want to play precious metals that way, you can do it. But there, there are other ways to play the gold price. The other is to buy gold mining equities and they provide you leverage on their profitability. So their margins will go up more than the gold price will because obviously they have a cost structure. And mm -hmm. so if the gold price goes up 50%, their margins could go up 100% you know, arguably. So you've got that leverage proposition. The, the one risk we have with mining companies, of course, is their costs could go up as well, right? And I know that happened about 10 years ago when there was a lot of new mine development going on, input costs inflated and actually ate away at that leverage proposition. And then finally, the, the one other way you could play it is buying a royalty company, a gold royalty company. I run one called Gold Royalty Corp. We're listed on the New York Stock Exchange under GROYGROY. And what we do is what, we what, actually- What was the uh, stock, stock symbol again? G-ROY, G-R-O-Y. G-R-O-Y. And <clears throat> the way we play it is we actually uh, put money into mines to help develop them. And rather than look to get paid back like a loan, we get paid back in royalties. So we have a royalty on the re revenue. And typically it's one to 3% of the revenue from the mine. So as the gold price goes up, we have full leverage to that. But if they have expiration success, if they grow the deposit geologically and extend the mine life, our royalty applies to the extension of the mine life. So we have leverage to expiration success like a mining company would. But the one thing that we don't have is the risk with operating capital costs because their exposure is top line only. Mm -hmm. So if they're operating capital costs inflate and we're experiencing inflation in the general economy now, our shareholders are insulated from that. So it's really the best of all worlds. It's almost like owning a gold ETF, but with expiration upside. Have you, have they seen massive labor issues in the mining business over this whole, um, you know, over the last, you know, 18 months or whatever? Are you seeing that? Is that where the major majority of the, like your costs or things are coming from? Well, there's a few factors that are driving. Labor is definitely um, scarce. And, and we've seen that across the entire economy, scarcity in labor right now. And that's driving up. Uh, labor settlements or wage settlements with, with unionized and non-unionized employees. But the other thing that we're experiencing is energy inflation. Yeah. You know, you're seeing how much more it is to fill up your gas tank. It's the same in the mining industry. We, we operate big machines that require a lot of diesel consumption. And those diesel prices have gone up. The other thing is our local currencies rates have actually started to appreciate against the U.S. dollar. And that was a, a tailwind for us over the last half a dozen years in the mining industry. Now it's a headwind. So we're seeing a lot of cost inflation in the mining industry. And it's because of the lack of labor, lack of uh, higher energy costs, 
and generally just seen input costs inflate. And that's driven by inflation in the general economy as well. And so we are starting to see costs inflate in the mining industry. And that's why I think royalty is the place to be right now. And that's why I've switched from being an operator and developer into running a royalty company, because I think that's where you're going to get maximum leverage to a gold price that I think has nowhere to go but up. Yeah, I don't I don't see how it can. I, I don't. Why hasn't it run more? In your opinion, like it, it seems like it would have run in the last two years. It should have skyrocketed. Yeah, in, in, in total last year, we actually achieved $2,000 an ounce gold last year, which was an all-time nominal high for gold. And then we've been kind of range trading for the last year. And there's been a couple of factors behind that. One is with all of this monetary stimulus, we've seen general equity markets achieve new highs every day. And so people are thinking, well, I can buy Apple. I can buy financial institutions. Why not just let that ride? But their multiples have been extended to levels that are unprecedented. Uh, you know, yeah. I don't recognize the price to earnings and price to cash flow multiples that the general equity markets are experiencing now. We've never even come close to that. So they're distorted because of all the monetary stimulus. So we're prone for a correction. And gold equities do much better in a bear market. And I think we're poised for a bear market given how far valuations have been extended. You know, it's kind of funny because people, I, I love when I hear people say like, oh, well, the historical ratios don't matter or whatever, you know, and they'll say like, oh, the historic, you know, the PEs don't matter. And it's like, no, they're historical ratios for a reason. You know, we said, we told yeah. ourselves that quite a bit when we were doing mortgages like crazy and they're like, ah, oh, you know, we'll just, we'll raise the debt to income level. And then we'll just, we'll just wipe out the debt to income level. It doesn't matter. You'll only buy a house if you want to, you know, and it's like, it, you can't keep looking at these rules and changing them. If you have a price to earnings multiple for the S&P 500 for a hundred years and it, generally stays around there and we're you know 50 percent above that and people are like oh, it doesn't matter anymore and it's like oh, it does <laughs> you know it's going to i can promise you that they're called historical norms for a reason you know yeah history history may not repeat itself but it certainly rhymes <laughs> that's a good one they uh they it's i got a question for you so when you talk about labor costs like is mining a well-paying job it seems like it would be it is um and it's, it's like become work, increasingly but... increasingly automated Really? Um, so you think about old school miners with picks and whatnot, that that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, we're using a lot of automation, uh, autonomous and semi-autonomous vehicles, particularly underground, open pit really? lines are becoming fully autonomous. So labor uh, components come down dramatically. So it tends to be the higher value added jobs like engineers, geologists, metallurgists, um, uh, technicians, um, you know, mechanical and whatnot that are much more highly trained and very, very highly paid as a result. And quite often they have performance bonuses based on productivity of the mine. So uh, rule of thumb is your most productive underground miner, the guy that moves the most material with his machines with bonuses will make more than the mine manager himself. Really? Um, and so you're talking about six figure paying jobs. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm talking about six figure paying jobs in the developed world and developing world. And so we, these tend to be very, very uh, well-off individuals as a result of, of being in the mining business. Yeah, I was just curious. I, I would think that that would be a well-paying job just because of the nature of the work and the, and, and yeah. how, how specialized it is. So, um, <clears throat> well, 
Uh, David, I've really enjoyed kind of deep diving into this with you. Um, it's been, uh, it's obviously not a subject that comes up quite a bit for me, uh, you know, to, to be able to talk with friends to about or anything like that. And so I appreciate you shedding some light on this uh, for me. Um, when uh, people are listening to this and they want to find out more about you, they might find out more about what you do, uh, who should come find you and where they find you at? Well, we're called Gold Royalty Corp, and our website is goldroyalty.com. So fairly easy to remember. And as I mentioned earlier on, our stock trading symbol in NYC American is G-Roy, G-R-O-Y. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. It seems like uh, uh, I, I think you've kind of nailed the head, you know, nailed on the head um, when, you know, being able to invest in it. I've got one more question for you that I wanted to ask you. I wanted to circle back to this. We talked about, because I have never bought gold, like physical gold to invest in here. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we were talking about like you could keep it yourself and carrying costs and all that stuff. What do you, because I don't know, where would I sell it? <laughs> That's why I, I never really know where there's a market to like unload it, you know, because I, I see those coins yeah. and I'm like, all right, I don't, I mean, I, so there's a stock market price, right? So like, I understand yeah. that. So I know that there's a buyer and a seller on both sides of that trade. When I see the gold price, I think, well, I've got to buy it. I don't know how I'm going to make, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to pay for it until I calculate it myself, but how could I ever get back that price if I'm not trading this on a market? Does that make yeah, sense? So I, I think, you know, outside of the ETF that I mentioned earlier on, it's a fairly yeah. inefficient market. You know, yeah. you, you, there's going to be a big spread between what you pay for it and what you ultimately sell it, assuming the gold price doesn't move. Yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm kind of thinking of like it's like where you know you've got dealers on TV and you're like okay I can buy it for that price but like I don't have a TV program to sell it back to them you know so I think like you know pawn shops and I think like stuff like that and they're just going to they're just going to kill you on the pricing of this stuff yeah. like they're never going to give you a, like per ounce on TV you know on the markets no. so no I I'd say if you're actually physically buying gold it, it, you want to do it from a accredited financial institution that sells gold and the spread tends to be much narrower between the bid and the offer on those guys because yeah. they're reputable yeah. and you know what you're buying and you, you know, the physical integrity of what you're buying from them. But then if you want the maximum efficiency, I would say the ETF on the New York stock exchange GLD, because uh, the bid offer spread is extremely narrow as it is for all stocks on the New York stock exchange. Yeah. And you know that you've got an audited financial state and you'll get as a GLD holder, it shows that your physical gold is kept in safekeeping. And, and it's all, you know, gold is fungible. It's all 99.99% pure, particularly if it's, you know, with the Bank of New York, who's responsible for storing the gold for the GLD. Yeah, I could see that because then you have a market, you know, you're trading, yeah. you're trading back into a market, you know, where it's not uh, having yeah. to create your own. So, okay, I appreciate you jumping in and solving that for oh, me. Oh, my I, pleasure. I was thinking that through and I was like, I've, I've thought that through before and I've seen the commercials and I'm like, what do I do if I had a bunch of gold coins and I needed to sell them? Like, I don't even know where I would <laughs> turn to. So Dave, I appreciate you coming on with me and uh, thanks for being on Money Talkers. We'll come back around and do the uh, high impact series here next, but uh, thanks again for coming on Money Talkers. Thanks, Cody. Thank you for listening to another episode of Money Talkers with me, your host, Cody Laughlin. If you found this episode helpful in your pursuit of financial dominance, it really helps if you make sure to leave a five-star rating and share it with your friends or family members who could use good financial information and entrepreneurial success tips. I invite you to join the Money Talkers Community Facebook group. Open Facebook and search for Money Talkers to join today. Follow us on Instagram, at The Money Talkers, for inspirational mindset posts, encouragement, and investing tips. And remember, the one thing 
you can do to change your kid's financial future is to start talking about money with them because you are a money talker.